We moderns often tell ourselves a story that goes something like this. The past was barbaric, especially when it came to punishing criminals or persecuting minorities. Here's just a smattering of what used to be considered legal and appropriate forms of justice. Hanging, chopping off a head, burning at the stake, quartering, stoning, drowning, and my personal nightmare, crushing. Very often, these punishments were carried out in public so that everyone could learn the desired lesson. But eventually, we tell ourselves, we learn to be more humane. We don't do any of that brutal torture and execution anymore. We mainly just put people in jails and try to help them rehabilitate and rejoin society one day. We overcame our cruel and barbaric instincts to be enlightened and compassionate. But the 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault didn't believe this story modern people told themselves. He didn't accept that modern punishment was any more humane than it used to be. And he used history to make his point. I think um, Foucault's way of arguing is just really dazzling and his um, the way that he takes apart any certainties instead of beginning with the kind of conventional wisdom like the prison exists because it's necessary. He, he basically forces you to rethink the very terms around which debates are organized around, for example, imprisonment. Um, so I think in, in, in general, um, you know, it's the kind of the fact that he never takes anything as for granted. Nothing is self-evident. Everything is up for discussion. My name is Camille Ripsis. I'm a professor of history and French at Columbia University. And my specialty is European intellectual history. For Foucault, power, discipline, and social norms are all entwined. Basically, discipline produces a particular norm. Um, it's the result of a discipline, and, and power uh, has a normalizing effect, right? So, so um, I think this is very, very important also to, 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 to kind of trace that, those dots between that we live in a normalizing society, and so that the point of discipline, if anything, is to produce these norms constantly. In his 1975 text, Discipline and Punish, Foucault argues that the modern prison system isn't a result of reformist efforts to create a more humane form of punishment. Instead, it's better to think of it as an evolution of punishment, an even more effective technology for those in authority to exert power. And that's the big question of the book in many ways, right? Is it why is it that the prison um, remains as a form of as the as the as the primary form of punishment, despite the fact that it's been so criticized, I mean, it's certainly a question you know in our culture today. Um, everybody talks about reforming the prison, but if you think about it historically, the minute the prison was invented, already people were calling for its abolition, and yet it persists as the primary form of uh, punishment. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Camille Robsis to discuss Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. So Foucault was born in 1926 in a town of France called Poitiers in a family of doctors. Foucault descended from a long line of surgeons. Despite his father's wishes to carry on the family tradition, Foucault just wasn't drawn to medicine. As a son of a physician, Michel Buddy, I can relate. He started out very interested in kind of psychology, psychiatry, all the psychic disciplines. 
He went to the École Normale Supérieure, which was the school to, that trained um, teachers originally uh, and, and a lot of professors. But but um, um, he was there with a kind of uh, a whole other batch of glorious French intellectuals, had very important teachers, including someone like Jean Hippolyte. According to his biographers, he, he had a very kind of depressive um youth and early, you know, there was apparently even a, a, a suicide tent, uh, attempt at some point while he was a student. While Foucault was a student in his early 20s, he decorated his bedroom with paintings of war and torture. He was inclined to self-mutilation and even attempted suicide. His father sent him to a psychiatrist in Paris who diagnosed that a lot of Foucault's distress came from the fact that he had to hide his homosexuality. During his time as a student in Paris, Foucault gradually became more comfortable with his sexuality, and he became involved in the underground Parisian gay scene. Then he eventually, um, after getting his degree in, in, in psychology, he went to uh, Sweden for a little while and was at the University of Uppsala. And that's where he started to also um, kind of take the work on the history of madness and, and, um, and, and use the library, which is apparently amazing in Sweden, to kind of fill out the empirical details. The History of Madness was Foucault's PhD thesis, completed in 1960. In it, Foucault argued that madness is a social construct, distinct from mental illness. He looked back at the historical evolution of madness to disprove the idea that contemporary Western society treats people with mental illness in a much more humane way today than they did in the past. He traced the evolution of the concept of madness through the Renaissance, the 17th and 18th centuries, and into the modern age. This historical examination laid the foundation for how Foucault structured his later arguments. In his subsequent works, he took a similar historical approach to see how we arrived at the present we live in, and to question the nearly universal belief that our modern societies are better, more enlightened than those of the past. After completing his thesis, Foucault took a teaching position at the University of Clermont-Ferrand. His first positions in university are as a psychology professor. So he's very interested in this question of psychic causality. Like, why is it that we do the things we do? Psychology was a very popular subject at the time. Freud's psychoanalytic theories and practices had helped advance the field of psychology by leaps and bounds. The goal of psychoanalysis is to treat mental health disorders by looking at the interaction of the conscious and unconscious mind. Foucault read Freud's work while he was a student and was quite influenced by his ideas. Freud is a figure that he wrestles with throughout his life. I mean, he's both fascinated with, with, with psychoanalysis. He engages it, obviously, in the history of, of madness, but also um, later. I mean, it's, it's, it's someone he always returns to. The, and the figures that Freud talks about, the, the kind of sexualized child, the hysteric, are figures that always return in Foucault's work. But, um, but he, you know, he takes a very different approach to to Freud, that he, he, he's much less interested in a kind of unconscious reality and much more um, interested in the effects that power and how power produces certain subjects. Foucault was particularly interested in how power shapes life, everything from individuals to language to society and to culture. When something is shaped by power, it is a subject of that power, which means that everyone and everything is a subject of some form of power. And I think perhaps his most um, important concept is the, the concept of um, subjectification or assujettissement in French, right? Because it's power um, oppresses you as subjects, right? It, it's, it's oppressive, but at the same time, it creates you as a subject. You cannot be a subject without power. And that's a very kind of specific 
feature of, of this theory because it means that you can't, uh, it's not like power is good or bad. Um, power exists and it creates you and you can't escape it because that would mean not being a subject. During his time as a professor at the University of Clermont-Ferrand, Foucault wrote two more books, The Birth of the Clinic, in which he argues against the idea that medicine has become more humane over time, and The Order of Things, where he looked at the concept of truth and knowledge throughout history. So he travels for a while after this. He goes to Poland. Um, he's kind of named, he, he works for the French government, the, the cultural attaché, so he moves around. He, he's in Germany and Tunisia for a little while. Meanwhile, things in France were heating up. The younger generation was growing increasingly dissatisfied with the conservative government. In May of 1968, students at the Sorbonne University in Paris began protesting against capitalism, consumerism, and traditional institutions. As the protests grew larger, they also became violent. The police responded with tear gas and billy clubs. The protests eventually spread throughout the country and inspired many dissatisfied workers to join in. But the workers and the students didn't necessarily have the same goals. The students wanted things like, you know, bring imagination to the streets or, you know, demand the impossible, et cetera, et cetera. And when the workers eventually joined the movement, um, what they wanted was better job conditions, you know, higher, higher wages, better um, conditions, um, benefits. This uprising in France became known as May 68. In the end, both the students and the workers achieved many of their goals. The government increased the minimum wage and established the 40-hour work week. The student protests, though, inspired a broader re-examination of French society. They opened the door to discussions on new areas of social liberation, including feminism, ecology, and gay rights. New, reformed universities were also founded in the aftermath of the May 68 protests. One of the, the students at you know, after May 68, wanted to have um, a kind of um, more, more involvement in the university, in the management of the university, more, a greater degree of curricular flexibility, etc. And out of this came out this University of Vincennes. Later that year, Foucault moved from Tunis to Paris, where he got a teaching position at this new university. Foucault starts teaching there, and it's again the kind of place where all of the, you know, the big names of what we call today French theory are teaching. So someone like Gilles Deleuze is there, Robert Castel, um, someone like uh, in sociology, someone like um, uh, Châtelet in philosophy. So there's a kind of, you know, a very activist group of professors. And as they are, um, you know, rethinking the pedagogy of teaching uh, on a very practical level, they're also rethinking power relations in their own work. So this is certainly true for Deleuze. It's true for someone like Georges Lapassade, who's a, who, who was interested in pedagogy. So, and it's true for Foucault. So, so the, the, the kind of rethinking of power is also linked to this experience of Vincennes in many ways of, of, of teaching this way. Why were they thinking about power so much? It's a lot of things, but certainly May 68 in some ways um, highlighted the question of power because in some ways this is a time of deep... Um, a uh, rethinking of Marxist theory, right? Because there's a kind of this idea that for many of the students who were involved in May 68 and many of these intellectuals who were involved in May 68, acquiring the means of production was not the, 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 the necessary goal anymore because, you know, we had a series of examples of countries where the proletariat had acquired the means of production, the Soviet Union, China, um, you know, and it's not like those countries were less ideological. So then the question needed to become, you know, um, 
how do we think about reproduction? Why is it that workers demand why is it that workers want to be um, demand their own subjection, right? They want their own oppression and they are complicit with the system, the workers, the, the, the labor unions, et cetera, et cetera. Many of the students and intellectuals involved in the May 68 protests were pushing against the power structures of society. They felt that the capitalist heteronormative system they lived within was channeling their desires and identities in a narrow way. And Foucault, in some ways, is also interested in this question through this through this problem of power and and subjectification. Right? You, it's not that easy to say no. It's not like so easy to say no to power. It's not so easy to say the opposite of power is not liberation. Right? This is one very important thing for Foucault. You can never be liberated because power is what constitutes you. Right? Foucault spent roughly a year at the University of Vincennes before becoming a fellow at the prestigious Collège de France. So he gets elected. It's an elected post in, in 1970. And essentially, I mean, the Collège de France is an amazing, um, you know, it's kind of, as you were saying, the summum of academic glory in France. You, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's very hard because you have to produce new work and new lectures for a great public. So it's not just students. It's, it's open to the general public. It's in a big kind of amph- uh, lecture hall. And, and you see him, if you read the lectures, Foucault is writing these extremely quickly, right? And he has to, <laughs> every month he has to show up and say something new. And um, and so he does, you know, he basically stays at the Collège de France until he dies in 1984. And and, and I forget how many, there are 14, 13, I think, um, lectures where he, you know, you, you if you read them in parallel to his published work, it's very interesting to see him develop and perfect his ideas in these Collège de France lectures. Foucault gave lectures on topics he was researching for his books. He gave his first lecture in December of 1970, and it was called The Discourse of Language. These lectures were extremely popular and very well attended. Throughout his academic rise, power was still very much on Foucault's mind. He began to examine the modern prison the same way he had earlier with mental health and modern medicine. Around this time, Foucault co-founded an activist group called GIP. And that is a group that um, that is founded in February of 1971 by a, by by a by some activists. Some of these kind of students of, of May six that were very active in May sixty eight, but also some intellectuals, including Foucault. And what they do is that it's a it's a group to that tries to that goes into prisons and gives prisoners um, surveys and talks to the kind of questionnaires talks to the prisoners and the idea is to 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 give them a forum to express in their own terms in their own voices um, to hear how the conditions of prison life are. I think the Jeep is very very important to understand Foucault's own um, uh, kind of mode of thinking about imprisonment about about especially discipline within the prisons. Prison reform wasn't only on Foucault's mind. It was a topic of public discussion. In the early 1970s, there were several prison revolts in France and in the U.S. The one that really caught Foucault's attention took place in 1971 at the Attica Correctional Facility in New York. In this all-male prison, over half of the inmates revolted, demanding better living conditions and more political rights. He visits Attica later and he says that Attica in some ways... um, uh, again, uh, highlights the ways in which um, the kinds of the, the daily humiliations that the prisoners were subjected to, right? And 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 really uh, revealed to him the, the the absurdity of the prison system in many ways, but why it needs to it continues, um, you know, going in some ways, like why it continues despite the fact that it is so inefficient, absurd, um, 
uh, cruel, right? All of the things that the prison was not supposed to be. In 1975, Foucault published Discipline and Punish, in which he traces the evolution of punishment and the modern prison system through history. Well, let's dive into the text itself. So um, take us through the argument. On the most general level, you could read it as a kind of, uh, as a historical narrative um, that traces the history of punishment, right? So Foucault distinguishes three Uh, big phases, if you'd like, uh, in the history of punishment. And it's easy because each one corresponds to a section of the book. So the first one, which is basically part one of the book, is the old regime, the ancien regime. He calls this les supplices, right? The kind of spectacular display of punishment by a sovereign. So the example he gives is the famous case of Damien, who was a a poor guy who tried to kill the king, Louis XV. And he got um, he got uh, famously killed by being pulled, tortured, and then killed by being pulled apart by four horses. And so, you know, what Foucault is interested in is the kind of the spectacle, the pain, um, but also the fact that it doesn't really work, right? It's like it's it, it never it's like always hard to get it, like the the horse, you know, you have, it's it's just like hard to the horses are not going the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Timing is really tough. And so the second part of the book is basically, which corresponds to the, you know, the second, the part two and part three of the, of the, of the book is the, the kind of the moment of the enlightenment, what he calls the age of reform. And, and this is with people like, like Beccaria or enlightenment thinkers, basically physiocrats who, who, who thought that this, who thought one, first that this form of, of punishment was obviously too too cruel, right? Too barbaric. It becomes a kind of symbol of the despotic sovereignty of the absolutist king, right? And um, so they want a more just um, society and also a more just law, right? Not only was this form of punishment too barbaric, it was also economically inefficient. This model couldn't scale. And finally, the third part is basically the what he calls the modern period, and um, and that corresponds to the last part of the book, part four, which is um, basically the emergence of the prison, the, the the prison as we know it today. What he and and what he calls the the carceral society. The example he gives here, the kind of uh, uh, epitome of this is is Maitre, uh, which was built in 1840. So in, around 1840, he dates this kind of new um, carceral form that he is interested in. This is the first way one could read the book, as a historical account of the evolution of punishment. And I think the second more complex reading of the book is also as a theory of power. How is it that uh, we shifted from the power that was incarnated in the figure of the sovereign to this new form of power, which is dispersed. It's it's capillary. You you don't see it anymore, right? You can't exact. It, it operates everywhere and yet nowhere because it's not located in a particular person. And so and so this is the kind of question of the book: is how did we shift from this spectacular, mean, cruel power to this other form of disciplinary power? It would be easy to read that historical story as a story of progress and triumph. Um, you know, I mean, we don't want people splayed and flayed and, you know, burned at the stake. Um, that, yes, sure, prison is, is hard, but, you know, it's so much more humane than in the past. Could you... 
maybe you could correct that vision because I think that's what's partly so provocative. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that the, the that that is the most provocative argument of the book. I think is that Foucault's critique of liberalism and and especially this idea that uh, you know that the prison is a less cruel version of punishment than the kind of tearing apart by the four horses. Um, Foucault is basically saying right away, you know, no, 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 don't be fooled by this, right? Um, it may be presented as such, but this is part of his genealogical approach. It was never about punishing less, it was about punishing better. The prison was presented as a more efficient way to punish people as opposed to, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, torture or, or, gore, or gory scenes that we've been talking about in the early modern period. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the imp- what's interesting is that he says in some ways the impetus here is not so much... Um, humanitarian as it is economic almost right it's more the prison appears more almost more efficient because uh i mean this leads us into the you know his discussion of 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 disciplinary power one of the things that happens in the prison is that um especially with the figure of the panopticon so he takes this idea from jeremy bentham is that so you have the kind of tower in the middle and all the prisoners are are organized around you the cells you don't need um you know, 60 guards around. You just need one guard in the middle pretending to look at all the prisoners. And in fact, you don't even need that guard there because the prisoners will behave as if there is a guard in that tower. So it's a kind of brilliant architectural move. And so it's extremely effective because you behave as if you're being watched all the time. And Foucault, um, what's 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 amazing about this book is it's not obviously not just about the prison. He uses the prison as a way to think about dis, what he calls discipline in society in general. And and the, the the rise of the prison only makes sense if you understand the rise of disciplinary mechanisms throughout society, through, for example, in the hospital. So this is where it links to his work on the asylum, um, in schools, in um, in uh, uh, in the army, right? So every, all of these uh, all of these institutions depend on disciplining. Think about the school, for example, the way that you're taught, you, that, you know, to hold your pen in a certain way, to sit in a certain way. Um, good handwriting in, in the military too. You know, you, the point is not to just gather the strongest, best warriors, but to but to hire people who can uh, follow disciplinary mechanisms, right? And 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 kind of obey orders, hold the, the you know their weapons in a particular way, et cetera, et cetera. So you can control a lot more people. So so this is very, very um this is this is I think extremely important in Foucault's book. It's it's what seems um more benevolent or less less harmful is often not the case. This is where he really, as I was saying, denaturalizes, takes apart everything that seems self-evident. Right. And and, sh- and it's a critique of liberalism because it, it shows you that, you know, the kind of liberal feel good idea of of um, well, the prison is better than killing them is, in fact, a kind of masking of power. I mean, I don't think he I don't think he would say it was better before. You know, it's not be- again, it's not better or worse. It's just different economies of power in some ways with the kind of sovereignty model. You saw it. Right. It was very visible. You saw the power. Now you don't even notice and that's the part that's so pernicious and so cunning, right? It's, the, it's that you don't even know that you're in this. What makes things even more complicated about this form of power is that it's not just held by the state. Who is doing the power here is, not, is never clear, 
right? It's it's not the state because who? Why would the state necessarily? I mean, the state benefits from a from an army, but it's from having a disciplined army, but not necessarily from having disciplined children who listen at school. You know, so who is actually benefiting from this? At times, he kind of suggests it's the bourgeoisie. So he says that the emergence of this disciplinary uh, framework coincides with the development of capitalism and the need to basically organize men. In order to accumulate capital, you need to have these men in factories, for example, respect timetables, work conditions, you know, whatever, not get drunk, right? So it's all of the kind of disciplinary mechanisms that, that, that kind of, you know, track you in in some ways. What is unique about modern discipline is the surveillance. In modern prisons that use the panopticon design, the prison cells are arranged in a circle around a central guard tower. The prisoners can't tell if they're being watched or not, so they have to act as if they're always being watched. The panopticon exists metaphorically beyond the prison walls. This is how modern power works, using psychological and not just physical control. This type of power shapes society and those who live in it. And Foucault recognizes that power structures and discipline exist beyond the state level. They're present in our jobs, on social media, and even interpersonally. By submitting to this discipline and these power structures, you become a subject of society. Power is always relational, right? It's never, it's never possessed by one person. It's never held by one person. It's always a kind of relationships. It organizes all, re all social relationships that we live in. If you think about, you know, uh, disciplinary mechanisms more generally, you still need to conform to it to some extent, right? So there's a kind of training that happens that makes you be a subject. Like that is the kind of, that is how you are recognized in society, right? As someone who, you know, performs certain gender conventions, performs certain norms around like, again, like, you know, how you hold your spoon, how you, how you, when you eat, how you close your mouth, how you sit at a table, you know, all of these things become, so they're class norms, but not only, there are more kinds of norms of belonging to society. For some reason, I had the thought that, you know, language is disciplinary. You have to follow rules or else you, it's just babbling. And so, yes, I am, I am disciplined by, by English, and yet it's how I have subjectivity. Is he trying to change power? What's the world he's trying to build through his scholarship? It's a very much an activist book in the sense that he's giving you the tools to recognize how these effects of power work in society. And uh, he says this, actually, he says that he, he hopes his work becomes a toolbox. You know, he uses this for history of madness and for discipline and punish, like a kind of toolbox that activists can use. Because once you see how these, how power operates, like at least you're not fooled by it. You're not kind of, you know, taken in. And then you can resignify certain things to kind of, to shift relations of power slightly, you know, um, to your advantage or this or that. But he says, um, the problem is, is, is to imagine that, that we would somehow be outside of power liberated, right? He says, a, he's, he's a very strong critique against liberation in history of sexuality, against a kind of Frodo Marxist idea of, you know, um, if you have enough sex, it will be good and you'll be free, right? But it's the same thing. It's like, you know, oh, if you, if the, if the, if the proletariat acquires the means of production, then we'll be free. No, that is not, that is not how his notion of power works, but you could potentially um, shift things around, right? Be once you recognize it. One way to rethink forms of discipline and power is to examine the ways they reinforce themselves. What would it mean to do 
um, prison reform without the notions of guilt and innocence to be, if you don't start with that. Like if you don't have guilt and innocence as your starting point, what does prison reform look like? What does um, what does uh, anti what does psychiatry look like when you don't have the concepts of mad and and sane, right? Good, evil, guilty, innocent, mad, uh, not mad, right? <laughs> Reasonable, um, gay, straight, women, men, all of these kinds of categories that structure your life. If you don't start with that, then what do you? Where do you go? So to not take for as for granted the starting, take those things apart and and see what happens after. If I remember, uh, he he talks about insanity um, a bit, and you know that in different places and in different times, you can have a radically different interpretation of what insanity is and and the social role of it. Um, and just for example, um, there was. A social role for you know the holy fool um you know in retrospect it seems like somebody with severe mental illnesses you know wandering around saying strange things probably you know needs help and yet instead of sort of putting them away in a locked room uh for their own good uh air quotes um they they are embraced as kind of a part of society and given a certain you know, form of dignity. And you could imagine um, using that, you know, using history to say there are alternatives to pathologizing and medicalizing uh, difference. That difference is not always like, you know, a problem to solve. Exactly. The idea of, of reason requires madness, right? So, 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 so in some ways, madness becomes a problem for him um, when reason becomes a problem. And again, when there's this new economy of, 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 of power knowledge that comes about with, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera, et cetera. And also criminal justice is a system, essentially, that, as you say, locks up, you know, wants to put these people who before that were seen as kind of like, you know, a little bit strange <laughs> wanderers. Now, all of a sudden, they have a name, right? And they have a pathology and they have a, a kind of classificatory um uh, they, they enter a classificatory regime. It does pose kind of very uh, difficult questions around, you know, the, the shifting nature of norms, right? Um, uh, you know, are all of these historically constructed, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera? You know, the kind of problem of ethics in Foucault's uh, work is, is also something that's been talked about a lot, right? One of Foucault's main insights is that knowledge and morality are historically contingent. What is considered better or truer today compared to earlier times might not actually be better or more truthful. It might just be seen that way because of how modern power shapes language and institutions, which then shape our views. He says that every culture and every era has certain underlying assumptions that are based on the knowledge of that time. These assumptions determine what is seen as the truth. This truth is power. Foucault uses the term power knowledge to explain how power is created through accepted forms of knowledge. You know, I don't think he would disagree with the idea that there are uh, objective truths out there, but the question is more that these truths are always imbued, uh, are always produced by a particular power regime, and that, and that, so true knowledge and you know, it's, it's the, the the term is power knowledge, so they are a- absolutely linked with one another, right? And it's um, uh, 
power produces this knowledge and and knowledge produces this power and so it cannot you know the the the, the fact that for example the prison, the emergence of the prison was accompanied by all of these other disciplines, uh, like, you know, law- lawyers and, and criminologists and psychologists and, and psychiatrists. Um, the, the theories that they had only made sense because these knowledges were applied to the particular uh, object that was incarceration. So, but it's certainly true that power uses particular forms of knowledge all the time, right? So, so and, and that is the way power legitimizes itself. How do you see his ideas getting picked up um, and absorbed into broader discourse? What's interesting about the reception of Foucault in the U.S., especially in the 1990s, is that he, he put his finger on a kind of... Um, or he, he rather he gave again this, these tools for a, a different kind of activism um, that was not that was I, I don't know if it was you know I don't know I wouldn't call it cultural Marxism but it was certainly a kind of um, it was on the left and it was different from Marxism in the sense that it wasn't centralized it wasn't about uh, you know acquiring uh, the means of production necessarily but it was much more about shifting conversations, shifting uh, kind of tactics, and also about politicizing everyday life. So, I mean, for example, when I was in college, Foucault was extremely important for a a group like ACT UP, right? ACT UP was always about um, uh, obviously politicizing your life, politicizing your everyday um, sexuality, but also about um, strategies, right? Small tactical interventions rather than like destroy, you know, or or, or like win an election or else like, you know, destroy, uh, um, I don't know, the the, all power. That that was never the point. It was more like little tactical shifts. You can think of a lot of human, um, kind of non-governmental politics like that, you know, um, certainly again, like in the field of sexuality, of feminism, but also, I think a lot of prison reform has been very interested in, in the work of, of Foucault um, resignification. And I think what's interesting with Foucault is that he's also had a kind of revival in France within activist circles um, in the 2000s, I think. In France, uh, I think a lot of activists have returned to the work of Foucault um, to, to, to think about uh, different ways to intervene in the political sphere. I mean, just to give one example, there's a group I really love called um, La Barbe in France, which is a feminist group, and they will, it's these, these women who will put beards on, and they go and intervene in, if there is a kind of all-male panel, they'll go and start reading from like Olympe de Gouges or Simone de Beauvoir or whatever. And they are very, you know, it's very Foucauldian, their understanding of, again, politics. Um, what, what does it mean? It means that, again, you're unmasking power, you're, you're kind of showing how these panels shouldn't be, you know, they should have more people of color, they should have more women, they should have, they should be more diverse. But it's, but also with irony, right? It's exposing this with irony and showing, and, and, and it's not saying like, let's cancel the panel, let's get you out of there. It's more like shifting around and saying like, well, from now on, you know, you'll be thinking about this when you, next time you organize a new panel. So, so I think Foucault's work is extremely important for, I mean, it's given immense, um, immensely productive academic work for sure. Um, but also in a, a very interesting um, legacy in activist circles, I think, both in France and in the U.S. Foucault encourages us to constantly question our current moment, using history as a mirror. Every era establishes norms, 
But Foucault argues that these norms are not necessarily truths, but rather the result of particular configurations of power. He inspires us to not so easily accept our own myths. For me, the most um, important lesson for me as a reader of discipline, or Foucault in general, is, is a critique of, of uh, Enlightenment uh, liberalism, of kind of Western liberalism, the idea that we could imagine a society uh, governed by kind of rational actors or, or composed of rational actors who would make uh, informed decisions, right, in a kind of space that would be free of, of uh, or that would be an equal playing field. And I think Foucault just like takes that, uh, rips it at its core, right, by, by, by inserting this idea of power uh, at its very um, at its very roots. He's writing, you know, he's writing this in uh, in a moment also of a kind of great moment of, cr of crit critique of Marxism, right? Um, this is the moment in the, the 70s when all these, you know, Solzhenitsyn's book is out, the Gulag Archipelago, like all of these ideas of, of you know, the, 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 the Stalinism had all of these, these problems, Marxism had all these problems, but Foucault is kind of saying like, guess what? <laughs> Liberalism has a ton of problems too, and he uses the word, uh, the the term archipelago several times. Archipelago, sorry, in English, archipelago. In his book, he uses it several times in in discipline and punish. Um, you know, to kind of say like, uh, uh, you know, this is this is just as dangerous, and you don't see it, right? It's under it. He says discipline is the underside of democracy. Right. So we like he's, he's a critic of democracy in many ways, not because he's saying there's something better, but because he's saying, let's just not think that this is so great. Let's think about what is the underbelly of it, the kind of complement, the co-constitutive um, element of democracy is this kind of um, uh, uh, disciplinary, uh, you know, regulatory um impetus. And I think for that, Foucault is really um, a luminary. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.